This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Bunny and Markets, where we look at all the financial news of the past week and work out what it means for you. I'm Dan from Shares Magazine, and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week, we're focusing on personal debt, company founders who can't let go, profit warnings, and adding a little spice to your investments. Joining us to discuss these issues is Steve from Shares Magazine. Hello. So, Laura, you've been looking at the latest figures on personal debt, and it looks like they paint a bit of a worrying picture. Do you think that's a good description? Yeah, I think that's probably quite accurate. So we had some figures out from UK Finance, which uh, is kind of a trade body for the banking industry. Um, And they collected lots of data. And we saw that in September, which is the latest data available, 10.7 billion of new lending on credit cards happened. Um, And so that is the highest since they started collecting the data in 1997. So it's quite an alarmingly high figure. And it also, some of that is obviously money that people are putting on credit cards and then paying it off each month and some of it is money that people are just leaving and building up that credit so the amount that we've got outstanding on credit cards is 44 billion pounds as a nation which is a pretty massive sum blimey do you you reckon this is linked to contactless technology because i know that if i go into a pub you know you you slap your card on the machine and not don't really think about what you're doing and pay for a round same if you go and do your shopping in the supermarket and i wonder if people are perhaps because they're, they're perhaps relying on less cash in their pocket um does that changing their sort of habits for perhaps they're not monitoring what they're doing and they're so used to paying with a card that actually they're not realizing that they may be sneaking up their credit card bill a bit too much yeah i think that's definitely an element in it is that you you don't have to think so much when you spend money if you contrast contactless technology now where you can tap for payments under 30 pounds with if you go back many years to writing a check out if you think how much time that took and how much thought you would put into how much you were spending in that writing of a check process the contrast with today is pretty massive but i think i think you've probably got two camps here in terms of this debt you've got one group of people that are maybe spending a bit more than they used to um, or who are putting more on credit cards and paying it off each month or have a manageable level of debt. I think you have another group of people who've been hit by the fact that prices have gone up, wages haven't gone up alongside it in the 10 years since the financial crisis and they're actually really squeezed and they're being forced to put money on high interest credit cards so that they can just get by each month and, and kind of pay for their food bills. So I think it's a bit of a split, a bit of a divide. Yeah, so what uh, the idea that you used to be able to get a 0% credit card quite easily, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm sure that when I've had a look fairly recently, there don't seem to be as many offers, so it would suggest that credit card companies are perhaps pulling back from making it quite easy to borrow, um, borrow really cheaply. Um, but I don't know what they're doing in terms of sort of, um, are, are they under pressure from the government to, to be, be more responsible sort of citizens and, and try not to lend to many people or, or is it not simply that straightforward? No, I don't think it's that straightforward. We have seen interest rates go up on credit cards and the number of kind of 0% deals or those balance transfer deals where you could transfer your credit card debt to a new card for 0% for 40 months or these long deals, they've started to come in and obviously we had a Bank of England increase in interest rates and that that's pushed the cost of um, borrowing up as well. And we're expecting interest rates to go up further from the Bank of England, which will push those credit card rates up. I think more what 
you've got is maybe some banks restricting their deals or only willing to lend to those with the best credit ratings. So then that pushes those that have maybe had debt or problems in the past onto more of the kind of payday lenders, the really high interest, um, almost kind of loan shark type companies. Um, so I think that's where you then see problem debt escalating because those people are pushed out of the better, cheaper deals and then that debt just continues to build up. Yeah. Um, so in terms of mortgages, I know I know obviously people, some people perhaps don't really consider mortgages in the same way they do as sort of, um, you know, your, your personal loans and credit cards. But um, I, I know from reporting on the stock market, looking at some of the banks, they, they've been talking about how competitive this mortgage market is. And, and they seem to be, um, you know, rates have been sort of perhaps lower than people expect. So um, I don't know whether that sort of plays into it, that people actually realise that if, if they are applying for a mortgage and they can get it, they're realising, oh, it's quite easy to get one, or maybe it's not. Yeah, um, I think the biggest problem with mortgages is your deposit. It's not necessarily the interest rate that you're getting or the amount that you can afford each month for a lot of people their mortgage is going to be less than the rent that they're paying at the moment so when you're looking at first-time buyers but it's more the issue that you've got to have such a high deposit to be able to get on the housing ladder so I think that's a bigger hurdle than necessarily the interest rates that are on offer at the moment. Interesting point actually I was looking at some data from the, the money charity and, and they were saying that the average deposit for a, for a purchase is 94% of annual salary so that's um, presumably most people don't get to save that up so they're, they're a lot of new buyers are looking for friends and family to assist them to, to get 94 percent of your salary as a deposit that's quite an achievement i would have thought yeah the bank of mum and dad as it's called now mm. so where parents or grandparents lend money to their kids to be able to buy a property it's now like one of the biggest lenders in the company if you put it up there in the country sorry <laughs> if you put it up there alongside kind of other mortgage companies and so that shows and then you've got another split there, I think, in terms of those that can have family help to get onto the property market and those that don't have that help. This potentially is a worry as well about if we're in an, a rising interest rate environment. Um, obviously, we come from a low base. So incrementally, a 0.25% rise is, percentage terms, a much bigger jump than if you're going from 8 to 8.25%. So one wonders to what extent new mortgage um, lenders have, um, or mortgage buyers have um, ultimately geared themselves up to some quite draconian um, costs on a monthly basis over the next little while. If you take a mortgage out over the next, the last 10 years, you're going to be on a, you know, a very low rate and you could potentially squeeze your earnings quite dramatically um, with small increases. I think so. I mean, it's, I guess it works for, for credit cards and mortgages if you're so used to having a, a low rate and then you switch for a credit card, you switch, your, your, perhaps your promotional uh, period ends um, with a mortgage, you might be on a fixed rate and that, that term comes to an end it is flicking to a much higher rate. It's how people cope with that. It's whether they're, they're, they're good enough to perhaps budget for paying you know, a lot more servicing their interest um, than they were in the past but I mean that, that comes down to sort of personal money management doesn't it? Sort of. Sure yeah but one of the, the facts I wonder is, is that you've got so many good apps now in the market for managing your money online and on your smartphone so it's it's really easy to, to get involved in your bank account or credit card account and manage it on a much more hour by hour basis if you really want to do that um, so I, I don't know I think it is down to personal discipline to some degree rather than whether it's easier to spend money check versus credit card that kind of dynamic I think it just still comes down to the onus is on you as an individual to just be aware of what you're spending and then make sure you're repaying some comfortable level so speaking of spending and online shopping, uh, Superdry was back in the news, the clothes retailer this week. And so what was happening there? The co-founder there seems a bit angry about something. Well, 
I don't think it's as simple as sort of saying that there aren't enough people with wearing jackets with Japanese writing on them, but it kind of sort of does fall down to the fact that um, so Julian Dunkerton, he is the co-founder and was the chief executive until 2014 at Superjoy. Um, he's just become concerned that the company's kind of lost its way. The share price is actually down about 60% this year. Um, so clearly as a major shareholder, he owns um, almost 20% of the business. Um, he's just got fed up. And so he is trying to get his old job back. So Julian has been going round to see um, all the big investors in the company. He's also had a chat with the board of the business to say he really doesn't like their sort of penny-pinching mindset. Um, and he's got some different plans for what to do. So essentially, he doesn't think that they are um, being flexible enough. So at the moment, the, the current management at Superdry have a, it's called a single stock pool. So the idea is that uh, you've got the same product in the store on its website and also for its wholesale operations. But um, so Julian is actually arguing that's not really being creative enough. You've got to come up with lots more ideas and products. Um, he calls it the company's not pushing the boundaries enough for the consumer. Um, so he, he's sort of there to trying to have a push. He hasn't officially sort of asked, um, put this requisition to, to shareholders via the stock market to say, um, you've got to come vote on me to come in. But this is clearly about to happen, given that he's done so many meetings and is going to meet journalists. Oh, 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 and we've had him here in the in the shares office as well to, to hear his thoughts. Um, now, so far, super dryers have come back and said they don't really agree with what he's doing, but let's let's see where it, uh, it progresses. Um, but really, this this kind of raises the wider issue of um, a, a founder of a business. Is it difficult for them to let go when things are, are not going as they planned? Yeah, is this just a case of almost kind of ego where he thinks he can do a better job? Or is it actually a case of someone who knows the business inside out um, and can see where they're going wrong because he has such intimate knowledge of that business? I think so. In 2014, he was he switched to brand director role. I mean, someone else sort of popped up one day and said that you know, Ewan Sutherland's going to be the CEO. So and I guess when you for a CEO to move to brand director kind of looks like he was being pushed to one side um he actually left the business start of this year so yeah he clearly does know it very well um you could argue this is his trying to make a comeback but um but i guess you know if you're a big shareholder as well you would probably keep an eye on uh, what's going on from a day-to-day perspective just just anecdotally i mean I, I wonder if part of this is down to just simply the maturity of the business i mean it's no longer kind of a brand that's down with the kids um it's generally worn now by from my um perception middle-aged men and i wonder if it's just that maturity it's become a very different brand to to what it used to be it used to be a bit cutting edge and it isn't really cutting edge anymore so maybe that's where the challenge is is, is just trying to suddenly accept well we're competing with next and marks and sparks now we're not really competing with i don't know an abercrombie and fitch or something like that yeah well laura you're our fashion correspondent um have you got any super dry clothes um, this might this might offend many listeners, but I think they're a terrible clothing company. I think they have no style. Oh dear, maybe, I know. Maybe that's the problem. You should write to to Mr. <laughs> I'm sure they'd really care about my views. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Steve, I think that's a very valid point. That um, you know, personally, it's, it's not not for me. But I can't say I'm on the cutting edge of fashion. But because um, you're not middle aged, Dan. Well, no, no. Obviously, I'm. I'm well into my retirement, <laughs> uh, or, or not as a case. But the, the idea of, of founders you know, not letting go, we saw this um, 
quite high-profile example in 2010 when Stelios from EasyJet, now he stepped, he did the reverse. He actually stepped down from the board and said, enough's enough. Um, I don't agree with your strategy. So maybe it look, looks like you know, as a shareholder, perhaps he thought he had more power as a, as a sort of a, um, separated from the business than rather than sitting on the board. And, and at that time, he was arguing that the company was spending far too much money on buying endless amounts of planes when really it should be paying dividends to its shareholders um, and start thinking a bit more about its capex. And actually, he was successful because lo and behold, by the end of that year, EasyJet was was starting to pay dividends again. But, and well, it's, got, it's had a fantastic... Um Financial performance for several years, isn't it? I mean, it really, um, it really stands out. It's been really difficult for airlines across across the world to make make decent, consistent profits, and, and EasyJet has, has got a very good record for doing that. Whether that's down to Stelios coming back or not, I, I couldn't possibly comment. Well, yes. Well, I guess you know, it, it, it was it, he was perhaps pointing the company in the right way, you know, showing them the light. But you kind of as you you would have thought that um, a, a decent board with. Uh, independent people on the board as well to, to give advice. It should should have um, shown the different options and realised which perhaps was best for shareholders. There is, there is a fine line, I think. I mean, I mean, in the US, we see lots of, of founder-run companies, Amazon, Facebook, and, and many others. And uh, I mean, I think there's some real value in having these founders on board for the long term. But sometimes, um, you know, they can take a company down a road that isn't actually best for, for all shareholders and all stakeholders. It's not just shareholders. It's, it's you know, uh, clients as well and, and staff and, and, and all sorts of other factors. Um, you might argue this comes back to the whole kind of argument about dual shareholdings and whether, you know, there should be one higher voting rank of shares that, that a founder can own and still maintain control but still give out um, other shares that the investors can, can enjoy some of the success if it comes through. Um, it, it's, it's a really difficult balancing act. I know SDL a few years ago, they were the CEO of a translation software company, and its founder, Mark Lancaster, he kind of stepped up upstairs to become a, a chairman and take a more strategic role. And, and the guy he brought in to, to run the, the day-to-day operations was a chap called John Hunter. And, and they clearly didn't see eye to eye from day one. And, and that arrangement only lasted about 18 months. And then Mark came back in and the share price got absolutely hammered. And, and, then, and Mark was able to stabilise things again, but, but it wasn't actually a silver bullet. And, and he ran into you know, more difficulties and ultimately left the company. So, you know, bringing back a founder doesn't always solve the problem in the long term. Well, we've got it at the moment with Benetton, actually. There's a there's one of the brothers, the Benetton brothers, is back trying to revive the brand. Uh, he's 83. Wow. So, um, wow. he's, you know, he's, he's clearly uh, committed to the cause throughout the years. So, um, so maybe maybe he's going to have a, a, a hardest time, perhaps a super dry, sort of trying to convince the world that the brand is still relevant. But um, we'll see. So talking of revolving doors with CEOs, Persimmons made the headlines again this week, and I think you'd have to have been living under a rock not to have noticed this. So um, both Jeff Fairbone was ousted after a lot of controversy controversy around his bonus. So um, the bonus plan that was built up for him was uncapped. So it's a long-term incentive plan that awards him shares um, based on largely share price performance. And Persimmon's share price obviously has shot up while he's been there. Um, But it meant that he ended up with a £75 million bonus, which caused a lot of consternation. He then had a terrible interview with the BBC where he didn't really confront the issue. Um, And the board have now decided that this is all too much of a distraction and he's been ousted. But what I think is interesting is actually emerged in the Telegraph this week
week that he was offered the chance to forego some of the bonus and keep his job and he decided not to so I think there's around 50 million of the bonus that hasn't yet vested or hasn't yet isn't yet in his pocket and um he was given the chance to forego some of that and he decided instead to leave which I guess 50 million pounds or keeping your job quite a tough decision yeah fly me what would you do (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I keep my job I think I like to work He'd been there, what, 29 years or something, though? I mean, it was, it was, a, it was quite the career he'd already had. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe he felt this was a simply a, a natural time to, to, to leg it. <laughs> but I think it raises some questions um, around kind of the board and maybe what the board were thinking in terms of having that uncapped <clears throat> bonus that could get to such levels that could then end up dominating the story around the company. Yeah, they probably need to, they need to be seen to making a clean cut and, uh, and installing a completely new strategy to win back. But um, let's not forget it's the yeah. board and, and investors, shareholders who've, who've voted this through. I mean, mm. it's gone to AGM, right, these 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 uh, packages. And, and they've all said, OK, we'll, we'll accept that. So you know, I think the, 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 the blame, as it were, needs to be shared around. Mm. Yeah, I agree. So also on the markets this week, we've had US midterm elections, which actually brought a bit of life back to the market with many shares going up after the result. But actually not everything has done well. Um we continue to see quite a lot of profit warnings. And when this bad news comes out, my goodness, the reaction for the share price is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, some, some interesting stats that um, Ernst & Young have put out recently talking about the number of profit warnings in the third quarter, year on year, is actually down a bit um, on, on last year. But it's, it's the reaction in the market on the day. Um, it's the worst since the financial crash of 2008 and 2009. So you've got an average share price decline of 21%. Now, that might, might not seem a lot because it's not uncommon to find share prices go down 30 35% on a profit warning. But it does give you some sense that um, people are just very, very jittery. Investors are very, very jittery about the potential for missing expectations. And I suspect it's because expectations have been lifted beyond unsustainable levels. And how prolonged are those falls? Is that kind of just an initial jitteriness, share price plummets kind of on average 20%-ish, but then it rebounds by the end of the day, end of the week, or is that kind of, we're seeing prolonged falls? That, that really depends. Uh, I mean, most of the, um, the damage is done on day one. Um, you might see a bit of a bounce the next day, but often you can see over preceding days, you can see um, days, you can see um, the share price drift lower and lower and lower. It really depends on on um, how investors feel, and and sometimes it just takes a bit of time for for the really impact to to seep into the market. Um, one one uh, share uh, profit warning that was announced yesterday was a company called Sophos. It's a cybersecurity company, and it's been very very popular with investors in the past. But um, the big concern for investors is that their latest reports were saying suggesting that potentially growth um, targets are, are they're struggling to meet. So if if you if you have a highly rated share. And you perceive it's a growth share in the long term, and suddenly it's no longer a growth term, a growth growth share. Not only do you have the effect of of cut forecasts, but you also have cut ratings. So that gives a, a kind of a double whammy to the share price. So looking at the Ernst and Young report, it seems that they are. It's not just it's not just one particular sector, is it, that seems to be going through problems? Is that is multiple ones? Yeah. Um, on the third quarter statistics, it seems financial, electronics, media sports services and, and the travel and leisure sector, they're all having multiple warnings. I mean, is this something to do with their 
I mean, clearly they've got sector-specific issues, but um, you know, it, it does show that investors putting money into the stock market, thinking I'm back in a, a decent business, they've got to be prepared for some shocks, haven't they? Along yeah, the well, again, it goes back to what I perceive to be just raised expectations to unsustainable levels. I mean, when you get into travel and leisure and retail is obviously the most popular for, for profit warnings, and, and that would be no surprise to anyone. But I think that's that's to do with consumer spending and the vagaries of that. But when you start to get into some of the more industrial sectors, uh, I suspect it's you know we've had a period of eighteen months or two years or so where business has been very very strong for a lot of these companies and analysts and and management perhaps are are perceiving the future will carry on in in this this vein. And evidently, that's not always the case. One thing that I found interesting from the EY report is that 15% of the profit warnings in the last quarter were weather-related or blamed on adverse weather conditions. And I feel like companies can't report their results at the moment without blaming it on the weather or attributing their good performance to good weather conditions. But how much has that always been the case? Or is that just because we had a very hot summer and we had the beast from the east earlier this year? I think in retail, I mean, it's always going to be a challenge. Um, the dynamics of retail have moved on. It's, it's no longer about ordering six months ahead for your expected winter or your expected summer. They're, they're ordering clothes on a, on a week-by-week basis <clears throat> to a large degree. Um, and I think it really does catch companies out when you get these really extended periods, the beast from the east or this... this it's amazingly hot summer we had this year and very long as well. But, I mean, the retail sector in particular has, has been notorious for blaming the weather about uh, about profit warnings. And it's just often a case of use that as an excuse for just fundamental underperformance. And it's not just the weather that these companies are, are good at blaming. There's been some spectacular excuses over the years. I think my all-time favourite is a sandwich company in America who blamed its profit warning on the Pope visiting the East Coast of America. <laughs> what um, link did they make? I'm not sure, <laughs> but I'm sure there was a religious link in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but actually, t- 20 years ago, um, a young lady called Victoria uh, sang a song with the lyrics, Any fool can see their falling, i got to make you understand. Now, I'm not sure that she was talking about share prices falling, but um, actually it does bring a good, a good sort of link into the Spice Girls coming back into our lives. Um, Laura's done some analysis of what would happen if you had put your money into the stock market at the same time as this uh, I'm going to say amazing uh, girl band, or um, I just you take the word amazing out and just say girl band um, was first popular. So, in other words, would it have spiced up your life oh. if you're an investor? <laughs> oh God, everyone's been preparing their puns, haven't they? I mean, a plus for that segue. I did not know you were going to quote Spice Girls lyrics. That's amazing. Um, yeah, the big news of the week. Forget the markets news. The big news is the reunion of Spice Girls, and so I did some research because I think when everyone thinks comeback of girl band they think how have stocks performed in that time it's the natural connection isn't it absolutely so uh in the 22 years since spice girls released uh wannabe seven companies have returned two thousand percent or more on the stock market wow i that's mean a, that's impressive that, that really is impressive isn't so, it so who, who's at the top of the list cranswick bringing home the bacon oh god <coughs> the meat puns always yeah. with cranswick but yeah that returned three and a half thousand percent that's really Just over. Good. That's pretty good, isn't it? That'll that, buy you a lot of Spice Girls memorabilia. That's total return, I presume. Total return, yeah. Yeah, realistic yeah. dividends. Um, yeah, so we had some big ones. I made a lot of puns around sporty and ginger and baby, but I, I won't 
make you sit through all of it. But could, could you give us some, some more examples of, like, of the stocks that have done spectacularly well? Yeah, definitely. So you've got Savills um, is one of the ones that did particularly well. So that had 2,450%. Um, one of the ones that the baby of the top performers... Yeah, I went there. Um, was Worldwide Healthcare Trust, only formed in 1995, and it has already delivered 1,550% return. Wow, that is that is amazing. Um, because I knew that you were going to be talking about Spice Girls today. You've prepared I, some karaoke. Yeah, I, I dug out my um, I dug out my ticket stub from when I went to see the original <laughs> lineup, um, whenever that was, 1998, and have a look at. It. So I paid 18 pounds to go and see them at Wembley Arena. Um, so I did a little bit of maths. If, if, if I'd not spent that hard-earned money, or, or rather hard-earned, it's taken for my student loan, um, <laughs> and, and instead put it into the stock market, I could have made 662 quid. Doesn't sound very, if I bought Kranswick, doesn't sound that exciting, does it? Sort of 600 quid versus experiencing one of the, um, the most important bits of cultural history that I'm ever going to see. I'm not sure, Steve. What would you have done? <clears throat> um, I, I might, I might not have invested in the stock market. I probably wouldn't have bought the Spice Girls ticket <laughs> personally. But um, you know, each their own. You strike me as a Spice Girls fan, though. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> <laughs> well, but actually, if you look at that, so that 662 pounds you would have now, that would buy a lot of tickets to their reunion tour. Probably what two. two, two in a t-shirt, probably these days. <laughs> well, we'll yeah, see true. because um, we're going to send Laura along to uh, report on it. So we'll see what happens. Amazing. That would be yeah. great. Our first live podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for listening this week. Um, if you have any comments, tips or areas you want to talk about, then please email podcast at ajbell.co.uk. We've already had some really good suggestions of people emailing in, so that's been great. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you later. Cheerio. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.